0: Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit ForerunnerChurch.com. more guest denials that show up here, the better this place gets. Bring them on, however many more there are. You guys got cousins? <laughs> All right, it's gonna happen. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter five. We're in a four-part series. This is our last session. Doing an overview of the gospel of the kingdom, Stuart and I. And this morning, we're gonna talk about cultivating a gospel orientation, what it means to have our mind and our life bent and conformed to the gospel rather than trying to bend and conform the gospel to match the lifestyle we prefer. Read this verse here. The spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The natural man does not perceive the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Father, we come before you. And we love your ministry. We love your leadership, Lord. It's so wise and vast. We want the mind of Christ. Lord, in this hour, we ask you that you would give a greater impartation, mind of Christ, that the word of God would dwell in us richly and we would be exceedingly filled your spirit, the fruits of righteousness and joy and peace in this hour of history, Lord. We love you, Lord, we bless you. Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at the gospel of the kingdom and really our intent has been to give a more robust understanding of the gospel that we not only reduce it to the forgiveness of sins, Uh, The gospel is not primarily therapeutic, but it is a divine manifesto that declares a certain arrival of an unshakable and eternal kingdom. I think that many times the gospel of Jesus can be reduced to God meeting our problems to help us feel better. And when you begin to look at the scriptures that speak of the kingdom, which we've highlighted many of them over the last couple weeks, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and others, we see that God has an intent, and that he has a will, and he has an unfolding plan, and he's going to do his plan, whether we agree with that plan or not. The gospel is the good news, it's the proclamation of that kingdom, It's something that God is doing to the earth. It's doing to the redeemed. It's doing to the created order. It's not something primarily that we do, but that God is doing to us. Now, Jesus used the term, the gospel of the kingdom, and he connected the timing of his return to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom in all the nations. This message That Jesus Christ is the king and that he's gonna rule in power. It's gonna fill the whole earth before the coming of the Lord. When that gospel goes forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnos, that's the Greek word that's used, every people group, every distinct people group, the Lord indicates in the word that that is a timing indicator of the consummation of this age and the beginning of the age to come. He prophesied... That this age would come to an end, that the curse of Genesis 3 would be undone, and that the gospel would be proclaimed in every ethnos. Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to bring the family of humanity back through those gates of Eden, where man was removed from through his fall he's going to bring us into the new jerusalem into the habitation of his father he's going to undo it all It's important because when the gospel the good news comes to bear. It's God's justice It's his plan and his way to bring about agreement in every single sphere of the created order from the individual the personal into society into the whole earth and the governance the administration of nations and into the entire cosmos and so the plan of God is very robust, as we'll see. Now, in the New Testament, the gospel is something that's proclaimed. The word that's used, where we get the term evangelize, means properly to proclaim the good message. The proclamation of the gospel is a pronouncement, it's not a discussion, it's not an opinion it is an announcement of something that has happened and something that is happening and something that will happen. It's an announcement of facts. And the body of Christ that proclaims the gospel isn't seeking to win an argument so much as to be a faithful witness and pronounce the facts of what God intends to do in the nations of the earth. When we watch the news, when we listen to the evening news, the goal of journalism and the news announcement is to tell us what happened, to announce the facts, to proclaim the facts. We don't necessarily want their opinion. Some people want that. I don't always want that. We don't want their opinion or their interpretation of the events. We want to know what the events are so that we could come to our own conclusion related to those events. The gospel is the proclamation of certain events that have transpired. Christ has done something on the cross. He has done something in the inauguration of his kingdom that is mostly hidden now, not visible to the eyes of men, but at work. And it is gonna culminate with the return of that king to the earth. That is part of what the proclamation of the gospel is. So when you speak the gospel as as a believer, when you proclaim the gospel, you're not looking to convince someone by all means of argumentation. Part of the gospel witness is simply proclaiming the facts about what God has done. God's kingdom is sure because God raised his son from the dead. I mean, this is remarkable. 500 people saw Jesus ascend visibly, bodily before the father, caught up right before their eyes, God's kingdom is sure, and the invasion of that kingdom to the earth is sure because of what has already transpired throughout history. Paragraph D, the kingdom was Jesus's primary uh, teaching throughout the gospels. His kingdom exists in every sphere of life, any sphere of life where God's leadership, his rule, his presence is manifest. So that it's multi-layered, it's multifaceted. faceted The gospel is not just salvation of dead works by faith and repentance, but it is when the kingdom of God, when the leadership of God comes to bear on every facet of our life. Yes, the personal, the individual, but also upon our bodies, sickness, those that are demonized. When, they, when the demonized are set free, it is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Luke 4 that he must preach the kingdom of God. It was for this purpose that he was sent to the earth. Jesus is coming to proclaim the coming kingdom of he and his father upon the earth. It doesn't matter if you agree with that plan. It doesn't matter if you resist that plan. God will have his way. Scripture attests that Jesus is powerful enough and he's wise enough to undo all of the schemes of the evil one, all the schemes of wicked men and nations and armies and military power and financial power. As they bring their weapons of war to bear against God, he will vanquish them with the breath of his mouth. They stand no chance against the king of kings and our Lord of glory that we serve. George Ladd defined the kingdom as God's redemptive reign in Christ, destroying his enemies and bringing the blessings of his reign. So wherever we see God's redemptive reign where he's destroying his enemies, his enemies of fear, his enemies of unbelief, his enemies of cancer, his enemies of oppression in society, the oppression of the poor, the widow, the orphan. Wherever we see the vanquishing of those things, we see the kingdom of God beginning to manifest more and more. Paragraph E, there are at least five key aspects to the gospel of the kingdom. Number one is the heart. That's the one we're the most familiar with as as believers. It's the new birth. It's the indwelling spirit. It is the changing of our legal position before God and before heaven that we receive the imparted righteousness of God. He gives it to us through the cross. It's something that's done to you through the cross. It's not something that we earn. We don't earn our justification before God. We don't earn our righteousness before God. Rather, the cross comes and does something to you and to me that we could not do on our own. Number two, God's kingdom manifests through his family, through his leadership in the body of Christ. He delegates authority to the body of Christ, to leaders within the body of Christ to administrate his plans and his purposes through the local church in the nations of the earth. That's a manifestation of the kingdom of God. It's his leadership, delegated leadership. Number three is the impact of the kingdom in society. This is the one that elicits the biggest reaction, I think, when it's talked about. Because the, the term is social justice that people want to use. They want to see justice in society. I want to tell you that God is going to bring justice in society. And he's doing it in part now. He does it, though, through the lens of the cross. There is no other way. And if the manifestation of social justice does not come through the lens of the cross, through the redemption The power of the blood of Jesus through humility, through the grace of God, the mercy of God, it's not true justice. It's not God's justice. It's man's justice. Man's justice can be taken away. God's justice will last forever and ever and ever. This primarily happens, the increase of God's justice in society through the Great Commission. It's through making disciples in our sphere of influence. Wherever you're at, that's where God has sent you to a mission field. So if you work at Home Depot, that's your mission field. You work in the financial industry, that's your mission field. You work in wherever it is. Whoever God has surrounded you with, that's your mission field. You don't have to go far away across the sea to go to the mission field. You're in your mission field. Your mission field is your neighbors, your friends, your relationships your manager at work your coworkers that is your mission field god wants you to bring justice into that mission field how do you do that it's by using your authority and your power your influence your the voice that you have to further god's kingdom and purposes to further his values and they see the way that you respond under pressure and under setback and difficulty and you know you were mistreated at work but your coworkers see how you respond with a gospel response. They see that you don't lash out in anger and that you don't go around and try and, you know, get back at everyone that has betrayed you and mistreated you. Actually, you openly and privately honor, speak well of, pray and bless for the people that mistreat you. This is it makes a profound impact upon society when believers actually do this. Believers are ones that are capable of relaying the grace of God and the mercy of God in a completely graceless and unmerciful culture. If you wanna stand out in the culture, the prevailing culture, be merciful to people that do not deserve your mercy. That's what makes Jesus so distinct. Christ is distinct because he's so merciful and gracious to the people that did not at all deserve that mercy and grace. And so the way that we impact society is through our position. If you have the more power that you have, the more ability that you have to display the grace and the mercy of God, they're not gonna like you for it, by the way. People don't like biblical mercy and biblical grace. They really don't like it. They crucify Jesus because he walked in perfect love and obedience to his father. And so the kingdom of God manifests in society. It already is manifesting in society to varying degrees. The Lord's called us to be salt, to be light, to shine light, bring glory to God, to make changes where we're able to make changes. And we can make changes in many, many ways. Number four, the demonstration of supernatural power. When God releases supernatural power, when he touches someone that's sick in their body, that's under chronic illness, that's healed, that's delivered from demons, that's the kingdom of God manifesting upon that individual's life. And then finally is number five, Christ's return to rule. I think this is the ultimate proclamation of the kingdom. This is the message that really made Rome mad at the early church. Because they weren't persecuting the church because Peter, James, John, and Paul were going around saying, Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells you so, do you wanna come to my Bible study because God's gonna change your life. Nobody cared about that message. I mean, they cared about it, but that wasn't a threat to their political, military power. The reason that Jesus is on trial before Pilate is because the people were telling Pilate, this guy is a king, and Caesar's supposed to be the only king, and so which is it? Which king is there? There can't be two kings. And so when the church is anointed with power, with supernatural signs and wonders and authority, when the church opens their mouth and they speak to political power, secular power, and they have authority that convicts them of their sin, it cuts them to the heart, then the political power begins to arise to persecute the church. But right now, particularly in the West, the political powers, they're not too interested in persecuting the church. They're not really threatened by the church, a little bit here and there, but not, not really, not like in the in the book of Acts. I think of John the Baptist standing up to Herod and saying, it is unlawful to, for you to have your brother's wife. Herod was convicted, so he put John in prison. John was walking in an authority, and anointing related to his words that convicted the, the political powers of the day and caused there to be more persecution and the disruption of power. Loved, what happens when Acts chapter two, the spirits poured out upon all flesh and every believer across the earth is prophesying an open heaven, a spirit of revelation, dreams, visions, visitation, miracles, signs and wonders and then they open their mouth to the secular powers and they say, you too must fear God, there's a coming king. Tell you where this thing is going is so far beyond where it presently is, and the Lord is helping us, and the point isn't to go pick a fight with secular powers. The point is to keep the main thing the main thing and not reduce the gospel to a therapy that makes me feel good so I can sleep at night without sin and shame and wake up in the morning and yet really enjoy myself. <laughs> and that is just not what the gospel is. There is a king that is coming. And Daniel 2 tells us, and Stuart mentioned this a couple weeks ago, Daniel 2 tells us that that kingdom that's cut out without hands, you can read it in Daniel 2 on your own, comes and it shatters all the world's empires, all of them, and they're blown away like chaff in the wind. There's no residue of them left at all. That means that everything that man has constructed apart from the beauty of God, apart from the leadership of Jesus himself, is going to be completely eradicated. And his governance, his kingdom will be established. And Daniel 2 tells us it will fill the whole earth. So every nation, every administration, every law, the educational system, the law enforcement, everything is gonna come under the leadership of this king. Now, if you stand up and you begin to tell that to secular powers, and then you have signs, wonders, and miracles, but you're humble, and you're not, you don't have vices of sin, and there's no way for them to dig up skeletons to discredit what you're saying, and the poor are following the message of the gospel and all that, then you become a real disruption to the powers of darkness. The message that fills the mind of Jesus is the gospel of the kingdom. It's his father's plan. It's the robust plan that the Lord has hidden as a mystery, Paul tells us, hidden in his hearts before the foundation of the world. Now that plan is no longer a mystery, the Lord has revealed what that plan is. And part of that plan involves your and my participation because every generation, it has been committed to us to walk out the part of that plan while we are here on the earth and to do it in a spirit of faithfulness and obedience before the Lord. We wanna have the mind of Christ, just like we read in this verse up here at the top, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians two. We wanna have the mind of Christ. In other words, we want to think gospel thoughts. <laughs> when you look in the mirror, when you look at your finances, when you look at your sphere of impact, you look at your family, you look at your schoolmates, whatever it is, you want to have the mind of Christ to think and act in accordance with the gospel of Jesus. Why is that? Look at this verse at the bottom, Romans 2, verse 16. God is going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, Paul says, according to my gospel. The message that I have proclaimed, that is the measure, that is the means, that is the standard by which the Lord is going to judge the entire earth. And so when we stand before him individually, when we stand before him as the body of Christ, the measure by which he evaluates our life is in accordance with the gospel. It's what's plainly written and declared through the prophets, through the apostles, through the mouth of Jesus himself. So we want our mind to be like the mind of Christ. We want our ways to conform to his standard. Now, the problem is many people on the earth do not know what standard they will be evaluated by. And that's why we need evangelism and missions and discipleship making that's why we need messengers in the media and all throughout the educational system and the political sphere and in every corner of the earth because we need to let the world know the standard by which they will be evaluated and by which they will be judged. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other there is no other standard. Page 2. Second Corinthians 5 provides us a four-part gospel orientation that we as believers want to adopt. And there's more than this, but there's not less than this. We wanna look at these things. We want these to become the way in which our mind is oriented around the plans and the purposes of God. Paul lived very differently than other people. We know that. Part of the reason that he lived differently was because he had a different orientation. He had a different perspective about the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the value of life and what was important and what was not. Here's, what, here's one thing that Paul was really good at that I'm not good at, saying no. Paul lived in a certain way, but you can't live in every single way at all times. You can't be over here petting the culture and yet be effective in the kingdom of heaven. You can't receive the praise of men and receive the praise of God. You have to pick. You must choose through your life and through your message who you will serve, what master you will serve. And Paul was on another stratosphere. He goes, look, I've been to places that I can't even speak of. I've been, I knew of a man caught up into the heavens, into the third heavens. He saw things unspeakable. Paul came back He had this encounter with the Lord that radically shifted his whole paradigm. And people, I would imagine, looked at him and related to him and said, Paul, it's like you're from another country. And he may have looked at them and said, I am from another country. It's called heaven. God's called me to be a citizen of heaven. I'm from another age. I'm going to another place. I'm not here to win a popular vote a reputation vote, I'm not here to win a beauty contest so that culture pets my back, I pet their back, we get the famous celebrity to show up in our church and then woohoo, we're doing it, we're taking over the kingdom of entertainment. Paul goes, I'm not interested in that, I want that guy to be saved, I want him to go to heaven. But God doesn't need Hollywood in order to get his bride where he's taking them. He doesn't need the financial sector, he doesn't need the political sector, he doesn't need the educational sector. He wants those because they're filled with people and he died for people. He wants to save them to the uttermost. But I promise you, he doesn't need your hidden talent that you stand up in American Idol, play your song, everybody cheers, and you go, all glory to God. I don't think that's really the vision that Paul had in mind or that the early church had in mind. God can do things through the most. He could speak through a donkey. I mean, he made a donkey speak. I want to tell you that encourages me every Sunday. I stand up here like, Lord, <laughs> I'm just thankful for another day that it's me, not the donkey. I get to do, the, you know, whatever. I'm trying. Here we are. And so, <laughs> I mean, he really could choose the most insignificant means to bring about his purposes. He doesn't need any of that stuff. This idea that he needs, you know, if we could just get these eight people saved, we get these three billionaires saved. Wow, what an impact that would make. It just, he doesn't need that. He wants them saved because he died for their sins and he purchased their life. He wants to redeem them to his father so that they don't perish in eternal torment forever. But he doesn't need it. Paul had a very different orientation. He pronounced another king. They turned the world upside down. Acts 17 speaks of them. They turned the world upside down. I mean, this is remarkable. Or Acts uh, 19. All right, let's look at this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse one, we wanna gain a gospel orientation. We want it to shape our life. We want these truths to become the lens, part of the lens. It's not the entire message, but the part of it that causes us to live differently and causes us to live, and here's what we want. We wanna be called great in the eyes of the Lord when we stand before him. We want a life that's called great. If we we could work so hard for God and do all these things, we could stand before him. If he doesn't say your life is great, then guess what? Your life is not great. Well, but the Bible reveals to us what it means to live a life that God, your father, the only one, the only vote that matters over your life. He goes, "I've made a way for you to be great in my kingdom. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be influential. You don't have to be so anointed. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to memorize every single chapter in the Bible, you don't have to know any of that. You could be great in the eyes of the Lord today. Nobody could know your name. You could be completely unknown by history and yet known in the courts of heaven and known before your Father. Number one, 2 Corinthians 5 verse one, Paul says we have a building from God, a house not made with hands and eternal in the heavens. For in this, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Now, he's speaking of the resurrection. He's speaking of the resurrected body. Beloved, some of you woke up this morning with a double loud groan. Your tent is groaning. We can see it. We can hear it from here. My tent is groaning. person next to you, they're groaning. There's an incomplete nature to this life that is only fully fulfilled and the resurrection of your mortal body. When your body, soul, and spirit are fully in agreement with the plans of God, you're made immortal, you're filled with power and light and love, sin is put off of you, here's the problem. So many people spend so much time and energy trying to get rid of the groan in this age. They're looking to other people to get rid of the groan and the incompleteness that they feel. They feel incomplete so they look at their spouse and they go, it's your job to get rid of the groan, the internal angst that I have because my life is incomplete. They look at their job, their career, their finances, and they go, I have to pursue these things because my, I am groaning on the inside. My life is incomplete. And in these things, I will find my completeness. It's not true. People in ministry, they try and satisfy the groan the longing that God created them to actually have, that's the result of the fall and the curse. They're trying to fix it without God. They're trying to fix it through the applause and the praise of others. And they think that if people just recognized how gifted they were and how amazing they were, they just gave them a shot, gave them more opportunities, and gave them more of this, and if their reputation was really good, that that groan would go away. It will not go away. You will live with that groan till the day that you die, to a degree. That doesn't mean that you can't experience joy in this life and spiritual pleasures and the beauty of God and the affections of Christ. It means that you are signed up for a limp until the day that you die. But if you don't settle that, if you don't realize that and embrace that, you're gonna live your life trying to get rid of that groan. And the way that you'll spend your time the way that you'll spend your money, your thought life, your emotions, consumed, so many get swept into, consumed by the fear and the opinion of others. I've gotta convince all these people that I'm this way and I'm gonna show myself in a certain way on Instagram and I'm gonna present this, this persona that's not really me because I'm trying to get rid of the groan. When I look in the mirror, I see all my deficiencies. I don't really like what I see. The Lord has, there's a groan in you you are groaning. Romans 8 tells us creation is groaning. Beloved, we're all under the groan until the resurrection. And if you sign up for that, you'll begin to realize you're not gonna exploit other people or other ways to answer that groan and that cry within your heart. It's called blessed are those who mourn. The spiritual mourning in Matthew chapter five is the embracing of that groan. I will be incomplete Until, like the psalmist says, I think it's in Psalm 17, I awake in your likeness. So I'm embracing that. Now, people think if you embrace that, then you're just going to live depressed. And I think that if you don't see that, you're going to live depressed. Because you're going to be pursuing satisfaction through all these different means. It's going to cause chaos in your family. It's going to undermine your relationships and all that because you're looking to answer the groan through other people and other means. The Lord goes, look, I made you for another age. My son was raised from the dead. I'm gonna raise you from the dead. I want you to hope in that, and I want you to put your trust in that. Having hope in the resurrection. Confidence in the resurrection stabilizes the emotions in days of delay and disappointment, in the midst of suffering, and in the rising confusion of the culture. See, the whole understanding of the resurrection of Christ is actually very practical because when we really believe it, then it actually brings a stability to our emotional constitution. We do suffering in our bodies, sickness, pressure, persecution, whatever it is, we do suffering differently when we have a view of the resurrection in our future and it becomes the anchor of our soul. We do it differently, we do mistreatment differently because all of a sudden we don't have to fight for our thing in the moment rally all the troops and get this big activism thing going. We don't have to fight for it because your life is hidden in Christ and you answer to him and your life is gonna be radically different and better than you can possibly imagine. It will be far better than you can ever make it in this life. Even if you have all the power, the money, the influence, the lawyer team, the promotion, the platform, all that stuff, one minute in the resurrection is gonna be far better than any moment in this life that could be afforded to us. Number two, we have to be oriented around the judgment seat. It's the most important conversation of our life. It's probably the most important 10 minutes. I don't know how long it is, but maybe it's 10 minutes. Maybe it's longer. The point is, it's the most important conversation of your entire existence, the judgment seat of Jesus, where you stand before him. Judgment isn't negative. It's the evaluation seat. We go to the negative immediately. Oh, man, here's all my failure. Here's all the things that... You know, all the ways that I've come up short, and the Lord goes, yeah, but there's also a lot of ways that you said yes to me in secret when no one was looking. There's a lot of times that you, instead of complaining, you cried out to me in the place of prayer. Instead of accusing someone, you chose to bless them from your heart. Instead of gossiping about someone, you chose to shut your mouth. The Lord was, I am going to reward you for all of that. I see all of that. Christ is gonna evaluate each heart in accordance with the teaching of scripture, the gospel, when we begin to understand this and live for that judgment seat, it begins to bring a substantial value to the importance of our interior life in God. How many times the Bible is emphasizing your interior life as so important, but in the pull, in the magnetism of our culture, it's so easy to fall into well, I've got to let people see my life. And the truth is, is that your life is hidden in Christ. That's what Paul says. Your life is hidden in Christ. The the cultivation of your life through prayer and through devotion and in secret, the choices that you make and your emotions and how you guard yourself and how you seek to worship and praise on the inside and pause and adore the majesty and the glory of God, no one can measure that. And so you could go your whole life being applauded for your outward life and having a completely dead interior life. You're gonna find out at the judgment seat. You could go adversely, you could go your whole life having a deep interior life in God, cultivating that Matthew 25 oil of intimacy with Jesus, having a deep relationship and conversation, long, long conversation with him over the decades of your life. Everyone can look at your life and be like they were a total failure, but Jesus will look at it and say their life is great. Their life actually matters before me. None of what they did in the outward was seen or recognized or celebrated by men, but their inward life is good. Their inward life is great in my eyes. He says that about the Pharisees. He goes, don't go into the public places and make a big deal when you give away money, or when you put in your tithe and offering because he says you might receive the praise of men. That's your reward right there. You receive your praise and your reward in this life. Because everybody looked at you, they saw you, and they applauded it. But on the inside, there was nothing. There was no tenderness. There was no conversation with the bridegroom and all of that. And and everything that you did in the outward could be wasted. He says the same thing to the Revelation church in, in chapter two in Ephesus. He says, I know your works. I see how you're working for me, how you're laboring for me. You're putting in the effort into my kingdom. You're doing ministry. You're serving people. He says, but you've left your first love. And your first love is the main thing that matters over your life. You must have the first love. You must have the oil of intimacy in your heart before me. But it's so hard to measure. It's so hard to measure our own life. How much oil of intimacy do I have? How do I answer that question? I look around, I try and compare myself to the people around me. I can't really get a feel for where their oil of intimacy with God is. I'm not sure. I have to evaluate myself in accordance with the word. How much am I worshiping, am I giving, am I devoted in my heart to Jesus? Do I love him more and more and more as the the decades go on? I have to do this. Having a vision of the judgment seat establishes value in walking in the faithfulness of the smallness of our assignments. This is a huge one. So many of our assignments are small in the eyes of men. Other people don't see it. Doesn't feel significant. It doesn't feel important. You know, I'm at home taking care of the kids. I'm doing my job. No one cares. I can clock in, clock out whenever I want. It doesn't really matter. The Bible says do all things as unto the Lord, not to men. Lord says, I see. If you have a vision of the judgment seat and that conversation with Jesus, you will do your secret life way differently. You will do it without as much discouragement, without fear, without feeling like, man, I'm a failure. I've just missed the calling of my life. Everyone right now has an assignment from the Lord. It's what you're presently doing. And that assignment, whether big or small, the Lord says, this is what I've called you to do. I want you to walk in faithfulness. I want you to be diligent when no one is looking in this because you're not living for the approval of men, what your supervisor sees, what your spouse sees, what your manager sees, what your overseer sees, whatever. You're not doing it for their praise. You're doing it for my praise. The Lord's gonna have a conversation with us about our lives where he praises us and rewards us because of our faithfulness and what was considered very little and very small and insignificant. It also keeps the heart, here under paragraph C, it keeps the heart out of the idolatry to be seen as relevant or spectacular or powerful. I think these are three major pitfalls to this generation, to be seen as relevant, to be seen as spectacular, and to be seen as powerful. I think that Jesus, In his ministry, as a servant that washed the feet, that dined with sinners, was not beholden to any of these things. And he's calling us out of these idolatrous pitfalls, the idolatry to be seen as relevant. Kingdom of heaven is very irrelevant to this present age. Very irrelevant. Walking out the Sermon on the Mount will not get you the accolades of men and millions of dollars, and more influence, and more power. It is irrelevant to this age, but there is a constant temptation to go over here and win over the culture, and to find some middle ground where the culture embraces Christianity, and the embr- Christianity embraces the prevailing culture, and then we just get along. I want to tell you, that is complete deception. It is complete deception, and we got to get... People, we got to get the next generation out of this lust for relevance and into a relevance in accordance with what the Father calls great and what Jesus calls great in his word. It's a very different lifestyle. It's a very different paradigm. It can lead to loneliness and loss and all of that, but it doesn't matter because you're going to live billions of years as one of the richest creatures in all of human history in the age to come. It's who the Lord's made you to be the temptation to be spectacular, to stand out from among the crowd. It says that Jesus, there was no form or comeliness that he would be desired. Jesus himself didn't stand out from the crowd. Christ made him a poor carpenter. He looked like any other Jewish man. He blended into the crowd. Why do we believe we're supposed to stand out from the crowd and that everyone is supposed to be in awe of how gifted we are, and all of this stuff. We've got to die to this. You live in light of the judgment seat. These things become less and less important. The desire to be powerful. Here's the man that can call down Christ, a legion of angels, to obliterate his enemies and get off the cross, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. His power was in the restraint of his power and his meekness and his humility. Beloved, this has to be the lens by which we order our life and seek to obey and please God. Leave it up to him. Leave the reward up to him. Leave the accolades up to him. Leave the fame. Leave the success. Leave the reputation. Leave it all up to him. His vote's the only one that matters anyway. Paragraph D, Paul says, the love of Christ compels us that if one died for all, then all died. And he rose for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. One of the outcomes of the power of the gospel to our hearts is that we don't live for ourselves. We become compelled by love. We do it because we get to, not because we have to. We become his friends, John 15, not just his servants. The love of Christ becomes that compelling force by which we serve and love and obey God. It's all for love. We've gotta have the first commandment established in the first place in our hearts. Because I guarantee at the judgment seat, Jesus is gonna bring up the first commandment. It's probably the first thing he brings up. Certainly won't be the last, but he will bring up, did you love me with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind? He's a bridegroom. He doesn't want a bride that serves him, but doesn't love him. That's an arranged marriage. He doesn't want that. He wants a bride that's deeply and profound profoundly in love and connected with him. I tell you, this is the rarest thing on the earth right now are people that order orient their life around loving Jesus with extravagance, with deep devotion on the inside. It's the thing he wants most and it's the thing he receives the least, the love of his people. Paragraph four, we have to understand the new creation in Christ. Paul made a radical statement that believers, they're a new creation. That through the new birth, through faith in Christ, all things have become entirely new. This is the paradigm that believers must have. It's this, it's that we're not as Christians trying to serve God and come to a place of victory, but we've already come to, begun at a place of victory because of the cross. We're not working towards victory, we're working from victory. Very different mindset. It keeps us free from a spirit of religion. It keeps us free from spiritual pride. It helps us to walk in an agreement, a humility with the Holy Spirit on the inside. Paul says, you're a new creation in Christ. But not just that, one of the things that he's emphasizing is, they're a new creation in Christ. Because in the previous part, he's talking about believers interacting with one another. He's going, don't just see yourself as a new creation, See them as a new creation in Christ. See that God has done something profoundly impactful and dramatic upon their life, that he has changed their nature forever, that he has caused them to live and walk in the newness of life in a fresh way. If you begin to see other believers as born again believers, if they're truly born again, you will relate to them very differently. You won't write them off as quickly. You'll find yourself more patient, more tender, More kind, remember all the things that Jesus called us to do in loving one another, forgiving one another, 70 times seven, it's a lot of forgiveness. But the Spirit empowers us when we see one another with the eyes of God and according to the eyes of Jesus. We relate to others through this lens. As a new creation in Christ, we see that there's a bigger story to our life as believers. We're not defined by our sin or our failures. And we don't define others by their sin or their failures. We don't categorize them because of their deficiencies. That's the term for accusation, the categorizer of the brethren. Our job is to not accuse one another, but to fight for one another, to love one another, to suffer long with one another, to forgive sin, to be, uh, to be kind and generous towards one another. The cross the last phrase down here in uh, paragraph E: the cross happened to us, and we can't lose sight of that. Sometimes I think when we start to evaluate ourselves with other believers or begin to identify their deficiencies, we forget that the cross happened to us. We didn't do the cross; <laughs> the cross came and radically, dynamically, did something to us. Therefore, because we've been forgiven without deserving it, therefore. By receiving the grace of God without deserving it. Therefore, by receiving the mercy of God, by deserving God's wrath, we turn and we relate to one another with that same attitude, that same posture. We're kind. We're gentle. We're not informed by the culture, but we stand true to the Lord. Now, one of the things that I found interesting is we've all heard the messages on resisting you know the world and you kind of get the picture of Nebuchadnezzar when he sets up the the big idol and he commands everyone when you hear the music you know everybody's got to bow down and worship it we saw the VeggieTales movie and you know read about it in VBS we got this idea that there's going to be this moment where our faith will be tested in such a dramatic way someone's going to come in and set up an idol and point a gun to our head and say bow down and worship it that that day might might come but i think what's interesting is that There's another, there are other idols going on right now that are just flying under the radar. I'll give you one. Here's one, the culture rising up in anger and animosity and blasting the other side, whatever the other side is, whether it's the body of Christ, denomination, ideologically, whatever, and Christians being swept into that temptation so quickly, rising up with a spirit of anger. They sound just like the world. That's bowing to the idol of the prevailing culture. That's adopting the way of the world. Jesus says, I want you to bless your enemies. I want you to do good to those that mistreat you. I want you to pray for those that treat you wrongly, that spitefully use you. I want you to be different. I've called you into this. Therefore, we must have a gospel orientation to our life. We can't do conflict the way that the world does conflict. We can't do power the way that the world does power because we're evaluated on a different scale. We're evaluated before the eyes of heaven in accordance with the teachings of Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Invite the worship team to come out here. Let's go ahead and stand. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that there is a new and living way that is greater than the ways of this world. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your spirit that helps us to walk in a spirit-empowered life of obedience and love before you. Lord, we ask that it would increase upon the spiritual family, Lord, in the name of Jesus. We ask that the grace of God to make those choices, to have that perspective, to orient our lives around the gospel, to see what you see, Lord, to feel what you feel, to celebrate what is noble and pure and lovely, Lord, to hate evil and unrighteousness, to be a friend of God. We ask that the grace of God would increase upon us, Lord. Would you help us in our weakness? Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us, Lord? Our our spirit is willing. Lord, I speak for me. My flesh is weak, but my spirit's willing. I know this is right. I know this is of you. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We ask that it would touch our lives. That the grace of God would flow in our relationships, Lord, in our words. Lord, that the narrative of our mind would not be driven by the fear of man. That we would come under the fear of the Lord. Your value system, what you call great in your kingdom. We wanna be a great people in your eyes. Help us, Lord. We receive from you. We receive. There's a greater grace, Lord, that you spoke of in your word to your people. We ask for that greater grace to come to this spiritual family Lord. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit ForerunnerChurch.com.